Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. If God came down on Christmas Day, what would he think? What would he say? Would he notice all we've done? Or just a bow seldom one? I think I know what God would say if he came down on Christmas Day. He'd say to every boy and girl, Where's the oil I gave to the world? played the waitresses i mentioned that that was my third favorite christmas song ever so today i decided i would play my second favorite christmas song ever that is oi to the world by the vandals uh the vandals are you know basically your your bog standard skate punk band uh from the 90s um if you don't know what skate punk sounds like um that's what it sounds like. All skate punk bands sound exactly the same. It was a good sound, but eventually it got a bit samey, and that's why I don't listen to it anymore. But sometimes when I listen to the Vandals Christmas album, I get a little bit of nostalgia for for that that skate punk sound, you know. 
when uh when every band sounded the same um that's kind of the the thing about punk if you look about the uh the origin of punk so uh in the US with the Ramones and in the UK with the Sex Pistols and the Clash um those are really the three the three godfathers of of the whole punk genre and they all sound different you wouldn't really mistake one for the other um the Clash had a much more varied musical taste uh the Sex Pistols were slower and more satirical and the Ramones really pioneered that. Let's just pound this chord really fast. Um, and that'll that'll probably be good enough. Um, and uh, for a while, bands that were associated with the punk movement were also varied, like the Talking Heads and Blondie, you know. Now you'd think, really, they were considered punk bands? But... Yeah, they kind of were because there wasn't really a definition of punk. There wasn't really um, a uniform or a, a style, like a, a restricted style. That was the the original punk ethic was DIY, be yourself, you know. And uh, unfortunately, um, what led to the homogenization of punk was actually hardcore punk um a lot of people who were into punk couldn't afford lps lps used to be really expensive um so quite a lot of ramones fans didn't own any ramones lps but it was pretty cheap to see them in concert if they came to your town and the thing about the ramones is they played really fast when they played live especially back in the day i think they were kind of nervous um, there, there was a, there's a story of them playing a gig. They were supposed to play for an hour and they walked off the stage after 45 minutes and, uh, the, the venue manager yelled at them and said, Hey, you haven't finished your set. And they're like, well, yeah, we have, we played all our songs. They did their hour set in 45 minutes because that's how fast they played. And the impression that you would have got if you saw the Ramones, um, back in the day, but you didn't have their LPs, was that they played really, really fast and aggressively. And that led to hardcore punk. And hardcore punk is awesome. I mean, some of the greatest punk bands ever have been in the hardcore punk subgenre. You know, um, Black Flag, uh, The Bad Brains, obviously, uh, Minor Threat, The Germs. I used to like The Germs better than Black Flag. Although, um, I think I now do prefer Black Flag to the Germs, but the Germs are still a great band. Um, and, and that's great. And also some bands that didn't start off as hardcore punk, when hardcore punk started uh, gaining traction, they switched. For instance, the Dead Kennedys sounded a little bit more like the Sex Pistols in their early work, a little bit slower and more satirical. And then they put out... Uh, in God We Trust, the EP, which all their songs were super fast, and that was a direct response to hardcore punk. And The Misfits, too, um, put out uh, Earth AD, which was a lot harder and faster. It actually ends up sounding almost like speed metal because The Misfits always had the kind of the dark supernatural lyrics. Um, you could really see the influence that they would later have on Metallica um, if you listen to the Earth AD, uh, the Earth AD album, whereas The Misfits used to be 
slower, almost more of a 50s rock kind of sound. And hardcore punk is great, but the problem is, is it laid the precedent for all punk bands starting to sound more like each other. And that would culminate, I think, in skate punk, where you had just band after band after band, you know, gutter mouth and things. And, you know, you, you can't really tell them apart. They're all playing the same music. So, but it is a good sound in and of itself, even if they did kind of push it a little too far. And uh, I really like Oi to the World because I like the the message of unity that it has. It's basically the the story of a punk and person of color um, and a skinhead who uh, resolve their differences and come to mutual understanding after beating the crap out of each other on the roof of a building in London. Um, and I think in our current political climate... That kind of happy ending seems further away than ever. But back in the 90s, we used to believe that um, all people were equal and that they deserved equal treatment and equal consideration and that on a long enough timeline, everybody would actually embrace that truth. Um, obviously, we don't believe that anymore. Um, we, we now live in a world where um, we want to attack and destroy anything that's different than us. Which is a shame for those of us who remember the uh, the old days when when equality was you know something that we were theoretically at least working towards. Um, one little aside about Oi to the World. <clears throat> so the description of the protagonist um, with a turban and all, he would seem to be a, a member of the Sikh community. And um, I once played this song for a friend of mine and she pointed out that Haji is an Arabic name and therefore either he can't be a Sikh and therefore wouldn't be wearing a turban uh, or he can't have the name Haji um, and pretty much ruined the song for me. So uh, thanks for that, Isla. I used to really like that song and now it's ruined. Hello, Roberts, Colin, Spike Pit. Now I know you like to discuss role-playing game mechanisms, so I've got one for you. In a roll-under system, using attributes similar to D&D, where you, you're taking 3d6 to get your stat, when you roll-under, typically you're using a d20. Have you experimented with the idea of rolling multiple d6s to achieve your check? So... Maybe starting out with 3D6, roll under. Then if the task is harder, perhaps 4D6 or even 5D6. Or alternatively, if the task is easy, roll in 2D6, roll under. Uh, Be interested in hearing what you think. I think it could be fun. Yeah, that wasn't my idea either. I, I got it from... A review that Ben Milton did, it was his most recent discussion on Questing Beast. And it was like this crazy vertical city place. Can't remember the name of it. Hey, thanks for that, Colin. Um, I saw the same review, actually. That's a Gathox Vertical Slum. Um, which uh, I would encourage uh, everybody to uh, to check out that review on Questing Beast and um, also check out the product. Um, before that review, by the way, um, I don't think that that 
product would have appealed to me at all. Um, not like in, in general principle, but just because it's not like something that I would be looking for right now. Like the cover art, while very good, looks quite like sort of post-apocalyptic sci-fi to me. And that's not really something that I'm going to run anytime soon. Um, but uh, after seeing that review and what it is, basically like a moving city that travels interdimensionally and is actually a, a god with a city on his back... Basically, you can you can bulldoze that thing into any campaign you're running and introduce interplanar travel. Um, and so, if you know if you ever have players who are complaining that your campaign is too normal and nothing weird or crazy ever happens, you know, enter Gathox, the vertical slum. So that's now shot right into my wish list. Uh, something that I'm uh, thinking of picking up the next time I have sufficient funds. And I noticed in the review that, yeah, that the product does uh, use the, the dice pool um, to roll under your stats. Um, I did talk about this briefly before. Um, I can't remember how many episodes back, but I talked about skill checks and various ways of doing skill checks. Um, and uh, I really like that dice pool one because <clears throat> normally like normally in white box, I use chance in six. And that's a, that's a very simple and elegant system. You basically... You only ever have to think about five levels of difficulty. So if somebody wants to do something that there isn't already a rule for um, in the game and you think that you want dice to resolve it, think of how hard it is and that's how many chances in six they have of doing it, let them roll or you roll for them or whatever. Um, the problem with that is that it doesn't reflect how we view reality. You know, there's a... The, the percentage chances of success are kind of weird. You know, they go in increments of 16 and two-thirds percent. There's a perfect 50-50, but there's no, like, 85 or 90. There's no 10% or 15% and stuff like that. And also, because of how White Box in particular works and, and <clears throat> other OD&D clones and other um, old-school clones aren't necessarily the same, but, you know, uh, White Box... You have a, a plus zero for an ability score between seven and fourteen. You, you only get a plus one for fifteen or higher, and you only get a negative one for six or less. And it means that if you have a fourteen strength, then effectively, in terms of game mechanics, you're no you're no stronger than somebody who has a seven strength. And that's a bit weird. And I don't mind that. Yeah, I don't mind that because I do try to run a game where it it depends more on what the players can do than what their characters can do. But um, rolling under your stats for an ability check is a great way to actually give some value to uh, to the actual to your actual ability score. And you know, the higher your ability score is, the easier it is to roll under it. And the, the using the dice pool is a great way to kind of combine both those things because you can take into account how naturally good a character is at something based on their relevant ability score and also how difficult the task is. So with like a like a standard difficulty being three and it can go easier down to two or one and harder up to four or five. Um, <clears throat> so I really like that. I don't use it in white box currently because I am trying to kind of keep everything as much in the spirit of white box as possible and just sticking to the chance in six. But there is one place where I've done something like that. So in my in my adult group that I run at the uh, the friendly local game store, we have two thieves, 
And one of the thieves only has a 14 strength, so he doesn't get a plus one to his ranged attack rules. And the other thief has a 16, so he does. Um, and the thief who doesn't really, really wants to get a plus one. And right now they're hex crawling. And, uh, you know, so every, every game day I roll for random encounters. And, you know, there's usually at least one interesting encounter per session. If not, I'll make there be one because nobody wants a session where nothing happens. But there are quite a lot of game days where nothing much happens. It's just a bit of flavor text. And he came up with this thing. He said, well, while we're on this journey, they're expecting that they're going from one they're going from a town to a city and they're expecting the journey will take anywhere from 25 to 50 days. And he's like, well, while I'm, while we're on the road, can I like practice target, like do, you know, do some target practice every day and eventually get a plus one. I had to think about it because this is the thing that this is the kind of thing where I like to say, yes, it's a reasonable request. He's just asking for a little plus one. And it's reasonable to assume that if somebody, practiced something a lot they would get better at it and he doesn't have much to do on days when there's no encounter other than target practice he's thinking about you know he, they're traveling in a caravan he's sitting in the back of the wagon he wants to take pot shots at birds or in the hours between they set up camp but before they actually turn in maybe go out and find a tree or something like that and try to you know do some target practice with it. So I said, okay, here's what you're going to do. And I started with 66. I said, you're going to roll 6d6 and try to roll under your ability score. Once you make it, so every day that will represent you trying to get better at target practice. Once you make it, you roll it on 5d6 from then on. Once you make it on 5, you roll it on 4. Once you make it on 4, you roll it on 3. When you make it on 3, then you've got your plus 1. And I fully expect that he will he will make this before they reach the city. So that way, anything that happens in the city, he'll have that plus one buff. I also stipulated that this would only count for ranged weapon attacks. Um, it would not actually raise his dexterity score, and it wouldn't count for anything else that dexterity might be used for, because he's specifically doing target practice, and he will not get the 5% XP bonus. And he's fine with that. Um, so that's how that, so that's how I've been doing that. And that, that's, it's nearly the same thing. And in fact, that's what inspired it. Cause I thought, well, I'm going to have to think of a way to, you know, to, I think it should be possible and I'm going to have to think of a way to make it happen. And I didn't think that narrative res resolution would, would work because he will just describe him getting slightly better and better. And it's basically, it's for free. All he has to do is make it up. So I thought there should be something a little bit more, to it than that. So I thought, well, a dice roll, but I don't want to do it on one dice roll. I kind of wanted it to be a time consuming thing. And that's where I thought, I thought it took me about five minutes to think this up. Um, that yeah, if I just make him roll on successive D sixes and once he makes it on three D six, he's got it. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I also, I didn't just pronounce that this was going to happen. I kind of asked the table, does everybody think this is, you know, a decent idea? And they said, well, you know, it makes sense because it would be really hard to roll under a 14 on 66, though it is possible. And it'll probably take a long time. But then the fewer the dice, the easier it gets. But that kind of mimics practice. You know, you're, it's hard at first, and the better you get, the faster you progress. So, you know... 
The only problem with that is that the other thief wants to do it too. And it's like, look, okay, you've already got the plus one and you're a halfling, so that's plus two. So you have a total of plus three. And I, I really don't think a first level thief should have more than a plus three on his attack roll, even if it is just for ranged. Um, so, but if he keeps, if he keeps pressing me, I think what I'm going to do is point out that if there's another task or something that people think they would like to buff, that they could do a similar thing if they could devise a way that they were able to practice it day by day. And it would be a similar thing. I mean, if it's something that where your ability score is seven or something like that, you probably don't have much of a chance or it'll take a long time. You'll effectively have to roll all sixes on 66. And uh, off the top of my head, I cannot calculate that odds, but it's basically one in six to the power of six. So somebody who's uh, better at math than that can can uh, can do those odds for me. Um, but I just want to make sure that people are kind of aware that this is a thing. You just you there needs to be an actual in-game opportunity for you to practice, and you need to be able to explain how you're able to to how you're able to practice. Another thing is, in a treasure hoard, they found a book, and I roll books on random tables, specifically for this reason. And then one of the books they got was called The Principles of Archery. And he said, if I read this book, can I drop one of my dice? And I said, if you spend one, like one full day reading that book, like in the back of the wagon, you know, you're not doing anything. No encounter happens that day. You're able to read that book that day. Yeah, you can drop a die. So he did. So now he's only rolling on 5d6, even though he never made it on the 6. And the reason I roll books on random tables is actually for that to happen. I don't want to make books up. I want to give them titles. And I want the players to think about, hey, what could be in that book? And, and, try, to, and try to propose ways that they might use it. You know, um, ways that I didn't plan. Because what I like players to do is I like players to take a bunch of random stuff and feel figure out how they can use it to their advantage. So, so I'm totally fine with the fact that he uh, that he read this random book um, that literally was called The Principles of Archery. I did not make it up. It's on somebody else's random table. In fact, I think that one came from the Dice Geeks book of random tables. Um, well, maybe I'll double check that. I have a lot of random tables and I even, just, <laughs> I even choose randomly, which, which book of random tables I roll from so that there's always a mix of weird stuff going on. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's my thoughts on uh dice pool rolling under, uh, under your ability score. I think it's great. Um, but like I said, I don't use it regularly for skills in white box. I stick to the chance in six, but I have used it for this. Um, it's a new mechanic that I've added to my white box game um, in case you want to give yourself, I mean, a plus one, that's not a huge advantage. You know, it's just a 5% increase in your likelihood of, of, of hitting. So it's, it's not a big deal. They're not trying to become overpowered. They just want to, they just want to, they just want to hit a little bit more often so that they might not die. Hey, it's Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets. Thanks for the shout out to my article on your, um, I don't know, I'm too behind now, I think. So, three episodes back. Um, I just wanted to call and say, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you about the knowledge checks. Um, I, I, I have my players ask me, can I roll to see if I know this? And generally my answer is, no, you just know this. But sometimes I let them roll, and if they roll good, I give them extra information about it. 
yeah, you do know that. In addition, you know these three other things too. Um, so I really believe in, yeah, exposing your players to the world and uh, letting them see what is um, in front of them, right? It's, uh, like you said, it's like looking through a peephole. So uh, that's no good for anybody, especially when you're trying to fight monsters. Talk to you later. Thanks for that, uh, Cole Rich. And uh, yeah, no problem with the shout out. It was a great article. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and uh, yeah, the the way that you describe knowledge checks, like when I run when I run five e, because I'm I'm just I'm not I'm not really into to skill checks. And what I find is that I, I prune them more and more. Where I just I try I basically run it as if it's an older version of the game and I tried to do things narratively, but I'll always allow the players to volunteer uh, a skill check. So like if they ask, can I make a, 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 a given check to, to do something? And especially if it is something like knowledge or something, then I'll go ahead and I'll let them do that. Or, you know, I don't do, I don't really use perception checks. I, uh, I kind of use passive perception and I also make pa- I make passive versions of other, uh checks so for instance like if a if a given monster has a bonus to their stealth um i add 10 to whatever their stealth bonus is and that's their passive stealth and then you know who the players all have passive perception and i use that to kind of resolve things like surprise you know or sometimes I'll pre-roll a monster's stealth check if if I know that there's an encounter in a certain area and, and a monster would try to be sneaky. I'll, I'll kind of pre-roll their uh, their stealth check, and then that's the number that the character's passive perception has to beat in order to notice the monster. And if they say, "Wait a minute, can I do a perception check?" then they can re-roll and and not use their passive perception. And, uh, you know, if I'd rolled high, the monster's really stealthy, nobody's passive perception is high enough to notice it, then they're going to get surprised. But, you know, if they think, wait a minute, can I do a perception check? But I won't ask them for a perception check, because I'm just done with asking for skill, for skill checks for most things. And I use knowledge checks a lot the, the same way. Like, I'll tell them, but if they want to roll for extra, then I'll let them roll. And if they roll high, then I'll see if I can dig up something extra that they uh, that they've earned with their high roll. And as you mentioned that, <clears throat> it put me in mind of um one of Frank T's uh recent podcasts where he's he's um he's doing a lot about how he's he's making a, a 5e light and he talked about what he wants to do to the rogue class and about taking skills completely out. And I, I it's one of these cases where I was gonna phone into the show but I thought what I had to say was more than a minute long. Um so I better just address it in the um, in the podcast. So this kind of goes out to Frank T. But that that is basically what I said. Like I I don't use skills a lot in Five E, but I also haven't completely taken them out. It's just that I don't use them actively as a game master anymore. I don't. I don't attempt to resolve everything using a skill check and I don't call for skill checks. So um, what I should probably do is go through the list of 5e skills um, and, and kind of briefly describe what I do with them. There's some things like some things hardly ever come up. Like I have rarely seen animal handling come up. Then again, maybe if, my players had more mounts or if I put more mounts into the game or beasts or things like that, maybe it would come up. 
Um, whoa, I, I've just seen my first Robin of the season out the window. Um, here in the UK, Robins are associated with Christmas. And what we tell kids is that um, the Robins are the ones who collect their letters to Santa and deliver them to the, new, to the North Pole. And we also tell them that the Robins in the meantime keep watch on them and report their um, naughty activity to Santa. So they're kind of like Santa's spies. And I've, I haven't been able to use that <clears throat> on my kids because I haven't seen a Robin all month. And I've finally seen one. So this is quite an incredible live moment. They're really beautiful birds. Like they're, uh, their little red breasts are, are really quite striking. Um, but yeah, for you Americans, you probably aren't aware of that association, but it's, it's one of the, it's, it's a UK thing. Robins are associated with Christmas in that way. Apparently it's because of postage carriers who used to wear red coats and their, their red coats were, uh, red is still the official color of the Royal Mail and, uh, they were called Robins and they would deliver things like Christmas cards and stuff like that. And so, um, that's apparently how the bird became associated with Christmas, but they do, they do show up in the UK around this time as well. So it's appropriate. Anyways, back to skills, athletics and acrobatics. I haven't changed very much because, um, they tend to be used for things like grappling. And I feel like they, they do tend to be useful for that. I mean, they, they're in a way acrobatics, the way the game usually uses it is kind of like the Dex version of, of athletics. And if you think about how many weapons in 5e are finesse, um, the first 5e character I ever built was a rogue and I had a really low strength. I think I rolled seven for my strength, but my Dex was high. So, and I was worried because it's like, oh, I'm never going to be able to attack. And, but I loaded myself up with finesse weapons and, um, you know, I took proficiency in acrobatics and it turns out I was never at a disadvantage. I didn't need strength because the game allows you to use decks as your strength if you don't have high strength. So that's kind of how I see acrobatics, especially because you can use either athletics or acrobatics to escape a grapple. Although I think you can't make a grapple using acrobatics. I think you do need to use athletics to actually attempt a grapple. And, you know, a weak character really shouldn't be trying to grapple people. Um, But I feel like, you know, something like athletics as a skill check, it... It kind of replaces the open doors, check, bend bars, things like that. So I don't have a problem with that one. All the knowledge checks, like all the intelligence checks, you know, uh, I said enough about that in my, when I discussed knowledge checks. Um, Things like, um, like making an active stealth check if the character volunteers it, that's a lot like the thief using their move silently thing. So again, like I I won't, I won't ask them necessarily although i'm probably more likely to ask for an active stealth check is like hey you know you're trying to sneak let's have a stealth check or i'll roll it secretly or something um but that's one that i'll definitely let them volunteer i discussed how i use perception i try to use passive perception a lot and i i i try to resolve a lot of the things that a perception check would resolve through role playing and through description and things like that. I definitely don't like using perception checks or investigation checks, for instance, to find secret doors and stuff. I just want to run it the way old school would run it. Like I'm going to describe the room. You tell me what you're looking at 
and I'll tell you what you see and you tell me how you interact with it. Um, I'm just done with this whole, I, I, you know, I'm going to roll a D 20 once. And then if I roll high enough, I should have access to every secret in this big room. It's like, no, let's, we're going to do this methodically. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go through the entire list because I actually don't have it in front of me right now. So I'd be doing it from memory, but that, that is kind of how I, there's a few, there's a few skill checks that I feel like they kind of, they kind of map something the game used to do anyway, but onto a D20 system and they're fine. A lot of the knowledge checks I don't like. Um, as I've said, I don't use passive. I don't use perception the way that the game requires you to do. Um, and I don't, I certainly don't use investigation that way. Um, and I, yeah, I, I basically to the greatest extent possible, I ignore skill checks and try to try to just run things more of an old school way, but I haven't stripped them out completely. So the characters can always volunteer if they remember that a certain skill that they have is um, relevant and, and they can ask to use it and I'll probably let them. Um, the other thing though, that that is always important that even people who haven't really tweak the skill system at all is to just prevent the dog piling thing. Um, that's a thing that's a really bad five E player habit that a lot of people have made, which is basically if somebody, if somebody rolls for something, then everybody else wants to roll for it too. And if you have four five, six players, you know, if you think about how much more likely you are to succeed, if you have advantage, well, if you have four players all making the same skill check, then somebody's going to make it. And if it's something pretty general like perception, then you might as well just count on them finding every secret door and noticing every hidden monster and things like that. So, you know, you do have to prevent dogpiling for some of these things. First of all, <clears throat> there should be a, if the if you're going to let players roll skill checks, there should be a lot of um a lot of times that you rule that you have to actually be proficient in it to do it um, and really try to come down hard on that. And, you know, you should maybe just let them know that, look, we're not going to have everybody at the table roll the same skill check. So it takes too long and it really, it really defeats the design intention. You know, I don't think the design intention, even of 5e was for everybody to succeed at everything all the time. So <clears throat> some, you know, if you think that there's perception to be done down that hall, you better pick the, the, the person with the highest perception and have them do it. Don't just have everybody else like dogpile on that skill check until somebody makes it. So, um, but, but dogpiling is something that a lot of 5e DMs complain about and it, it sucks, you know, <clears throat> first, you know, somebody, somebody does, I'm going to do this thing and everybody else goes, I'm going to do it too. And then everybody at your table is rolling their dice and then somebody s turns up with a 20 and it wasn't even their idea in the first place. And you know, what the hell? So, so yeah, I was going to, uh, talk about a new product that I purchased, um, and would like you all to consider purchasing, but, um, we're, uh, we're over 30 minutes here. So I think we'll just call this a Collins episode and I will talk to you about Woodfall, uh, next time I get a podcast up and running in the meantime, play well and let the dice fall where they may.